Good morning. Morning. You can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, Mike, maybe they're a little bit awake this morning. I'll take care of that. Okay. <laughs> well, we can take that two or three different ways. Can we? Excuse me. When I asked Mike if there were some words I might say to introduce him, he sent me back a note saying that, well, he's been around before and we're so glad he's coming again. But he did give me two more things that you may not be aware of. One is that he served a church in Woodbridge, Illinois from 1971 to 1978. And he was back there this past year to help them in celebrating their 50th anniversary. Another thing that has happened, he and Dolores this year are now great-grandparents. So congratulations on that. I'll give you a big hand. If you will, please come and share with us this morning. It is really good to be here, and it is good to see all of you. I'm a little bit amazed. I'm feeling much older since <laughs> since I became a great-grandparent on the 20th of December for the first time, but I heard that somebody else here has got me beat. How many great-grandparents do we have here? Okay, well, not a majority yet. <laughs> I'm a member of a, a select few. Um, it, uh, it it just happens in the normal course of things. Our I haven't seen our great granddaughter yet. Uh, her home is in Moorhead, Minnesota. And if you don't know where Moorhead is, think Fargo, North Dakota, because Moorhead and Fargo are twin cities up there. And um, the uh, as of Monday or Tuesday last week, it was about a minus three for a high in Fargo. So we're not going back up there real soon to see little uh, Eliza Jane. And uh any rate, when I contracted with Al to uh, to teach these two Sundays, uh, I uh, talked him into allowing me to talk about a God to match the present age. And that that may sound a little bit strange. There probably is a better way of wording that. Uh, how do we understand God in the present age, or does it make any difference? Has God changed? Well... Probably not. Has our understanding of him changed? Well, maybe it ought to. Has our understanding of the world changed in the last century? And that's essentially what I've been doing for the last 14 or 15 years since I retired, is trying to uh, learn what I hadn't learned when I graduated from the Naval Academy in 1956, uh, what I hadn't learned about the astrophysical world and the uh, world of uh, the natural world in which we lived, live, and I found out that there was an awful lot that I hadn't learned, mainly because there was not a lot of knowledge in 1956 compared to what we know today, and that's uh, one of the one of the problems I faced. Just to illustrate, and it's a common illustration, when I entered the Naval Academy, they gave me a computer. It was a, a ruler with a middle part tested out of my chest. <laughs> and the, the first summer that I was there, plebe summer, we all had to become experts on the, the computer. <laughs> and if you couldn't grasp the computer, you left before the summer was over. And I lost several classmates because they couldn't figure that computer out. <laughs> oh, man. Well. Uh, someday I am going to hang on a wall in our home uh, that computer, see, uh, the museum piece from uh, compared to the age today. I, I know that 
the cadets at West Point and at uh, the Air Force Academy, and I know that personally because we've got a granddaughter that's going to graduate in May from the Air Force Academy. You didn't ask me about the pin I'm wearing. It's the class of 2014 U.S. Uh, Air Force Academy crest. And she, and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's all right. I'll, I'm going to be there. <laughs> I promise you. Just uh, looking forward to that. Um, but that was the computer that I that I knew. Well, obviously, the world has changed uh, quite a little bit, and I can illustrate that, uh, and I intend to illustrate that in a few moments. But as I was preparing for this, I ran across uh, an article just a week ago, and it's amazing how I run across these things that relate to what I'm going to teach. Uh, it was a book review from the Wall Street Journal. Now, I'm at the at the condition in my life and some of you may be there where I need to wear the, the sweatshirt, so many books, and so little time. <laughs> and I'm reading, uh, just to let you know what I'm reading right now, I'm reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's The Bully Pulpit. That's mainly because I'm an admirer of President Theodore Roosevelt, and I, and I don't know a whole lot about William Howard Taft, but believe me, I am learning. Uh, I read her book, The, uh, the Team of Rivals, and I thought it was marvelous. She's an excellent historian and an excellent writer. If you have, you've got a little time to do reading, I commend the bully pulpit to you because it's a good study of Taft and, and, uh, of Theodore Roosevelt. Now, the article I ran across was a, a book review about a book entitled Maimonides. Familiar name? Maimonides was one of the great Jewish mystic scholars of the Middle Ages. As a matter of fact, he was born in 1138. And before I read this article, I knew uh, that's about all I knew about Maimonides. But I want to know a little bit more about Maimonides because uh, Maimonides was a physician, a rabbi, a politician, and philosopher. And his life spanned concepts and continents. Born in Cordoba in 1138, he fled with his family to Morocco as a youth when a new tyrannical Muslim regime took over power and demanded that the Spanish Jews convert or die. Uh, that was our world in the 1100s. At 17, he published his treatise on logic, and he reworked the Talmud and set it in proper order. But his greatest book was this, The Guide to the Perplexed is Maimonides' greatest work. Written as letters to a Jewish student confused by Greek philosophy and its apparent conflict with the Torah, the guide presents a system of Jewish belief that accommodates a scientific worldview, but in a highly enigmatic style that invites multiple interpretations. Now, from that little bit of introduction, the, uh, the author of the book, whose name is Halbertal, uh, and the author of the review goes on to say this about the the book and this is the paragraph that really caught my eye uh, but those prepared to plunge into the depths will be rewarded with a mind enlarging perspective that is absent from today's american culture where theological arguments are typically reduced to a choice between arrogant atheism or mind-numbing faith and i said amen brother have i been there for that arrogant atheism or mind-numbing faith while Maimonides' ideas won't convince those wedded to either of the above, it is refreshing for today's perplexed to listen in on serious thinkers, both Maimonides and Moshe Halbertal, 
who refused to check their brains or their faith at the door. As Mr. Halbertel says, the perplexed of every age can learn one thing from Maimonides. No matter what their dilemma may be, they should never allow it to foreclose human thought and inner integrity. Now what I intend to do today is to set forth an understanding of the universe, which some of you may have already reached because you've read about it, but I hadn't reached when I began doing my reading about 15 years ago. And, um, and it's a, it's toward a new cosmology, basically. A new understanding, a new way of thinking about the universe, and it comes from this book, basically, The View from the Center of the Universe, and this is by Joel R. Primack and Nancy Ellen Abrams. They're a husband and wife team. They teach uh, physics, physics at the University of Southern California, and uh, they wrote this book because they felt that we needed to get a different we needed a different cosmology to think about the universe as it really is and our understanding today as different from our terracentric thought or even our solar-centric thought. Uh, the earth the center of the universe, the sun the center of the universe, and you know how much struggle the church has had over the centuries about those two ideas. One, the, 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 we began by thinking the earth was the center of the universe, then we decided that the sun was the center of the universe, then all of a sudden, in this last century, we've discovered that neither one of those is true, that the solar system itself is not the center of the universe. And we need to start thinking in more cosmic, in a more cosmic way about the whole of the universe. I, I'd like to illustrate this with a little personal anecdote, and you will bear with me. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but in the year 2000, Dolores and I were with a couple of our grandchildren, Stephen and Teresa, and we were up in the, driving in the North Georgia Mountains. And at that point, Stephen was 10 and uh, Teresa was 8. And this is a story about Stephen. At any rate, we were starting back from the North Georgia Mountains, and for one reason or another, Stephen was sitting in front with me and I was driving, and Dolores was in back with Teresa, in the back with Teresa. And Stephen turned to me and he said, Grandpa. And I said, yeah, Stephen, what is it? He said, well, I just learned the names of the planets in order from the sun. I thought, okay, 10 years old. Now, tell me what the, the names of the order of the planets uh, from the, the sun, the order of the planets from the sun. And he went Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. And I said, Stephen, that's really very, very good. Uh, and uh, he was silent for a few moments, but... If you really listen hard, you could almost hear the wheels turning. And then, then he said to me, he said, Grandpa, he says, is there any oxygen in space? Oh, I sort of looked at him, you know, 10 years old. What kind of a question is that? And I said, well, no, Stephen, as far as I know, there isn't any oxygen in space. As a matter of fact, the only significant gathering of oxygen that I know anything about is in the atmosphere around the Earth. And the, there isn't any oxygen in space. And then came the question that really got to me. He said, well, Grandpa, if there's no oxygen in space, how does the sun burn? And I said to young Stephen, you have just asked the wrong person that question. <laughs> so let me explain to you thermonuclear fusion and hydrogen. But do you know, uh, I... 
<laughs> I, I, I toned it down just a little bit for this 10-year-old, but I thought it was pretty good for a 10-year-old to be able to ask that question. But I got home, and I started researching this, the way I had researched before. Now, not because I didn't understand how thermonuclear reactions, I got that all down. I once knew the mathematics of it and all the rest of that. But, but what I didn't realize was that if we had been driving along in the North Georgia mountains, in my horse and buggy, or in our uh, <laughs> horseless carriage, back in the year 1900, and a 10-year-old boy, a grandson of mine, had asked me that same question. Not only would I not have known how the sun makes heat, how the sun burns, but no one on earth would have known it. We did not know in 1900 how the sun made heat. As a matter of fact, and this this will interest you very much, I am sure. According to all of the uh, astrophysicists around in 1900 who had studied this with spectrographic analysis, um, the, uh, they were all convinced that the sun was made up principally of iron. And one of the problems confronting physicists in 1900 was how in the world does a body that's made up almost totally of iron produce the amount of heat that the sun produces because iron is a fairly inert substance upon earth and everywhere else that we can encounter in the universe. So they hadn't quite figured that out. <laughs> but then along came a woman. Now, you notice that I explained to you that all of these astrophysicists were males. Um, this was back in 1900, a century ago. Not a long time in terms of span, but a long time in terms of, oh, uh, a social understanding. At any rate, the woman was uh, Cecilia Payne. She uh, was born in England, and she entered Cambridge um, in 1919 and took a degree at Cambridge, an undergraduate degree. And she was a very bright young woman, and she became interested in astrophysics, and particularly she became interested in the problem of the makeup of the sun and how the sun produced heat. So she wanted to go on and do doctoral studies in that area. But uh, in 1919, in the early 1920s, uh, Cambridge had a, a very broad-minded approach, and no women were allowed to do graduate study. <laughs> so what did she do but come over to the United States? And uh, she entered Harvard University, and uh, Harvard University accepted her to do doctoral studies. You see. And so she be, she expressed that she was interested in doing her doctoral studies on how the sun produced heat, on the makeup of the sun, basically. Uh, so she had uh, a guy by the name of Eddington who tutored her at Harvard, and he allowed her to go ahead with her doctoral studies and uh, study how the sun produced heat. So she went back over the spectrographic analysis that had been done by all of these male astrophysicists, and she looked at it again, and she studied it very closely, and she said, well, it's not, it's not, it's not iron. Uh, and she didn't say, you idiot. She was very polite. It's not iron, but it's hydrogen. And to a man, they all said, no, it isn't. You're a woman, and you don't know anything. <laughs> so, certainly you don't know enough to tell us that we're wrong in our analysis of the sun, and that the sun is made up mostly of iron. And by the way, hydrogen by itself doesn't produce very much energy anyway, does it? Well, of course, the answer to that had been figured out, um, you know, several years before, about 1905, when Einstein wrote his uh, paper on general relativity and came up with the um, e equals mc squared. 
so that the, the basic mathematics for how hydrogen could produce a lot of energy was there, only <laughs> it hadn't all been figured out yet. We were doing the work on, uh, the Curies were doing their work on uh, subatomic radiation, uh, radioactivity. Uh, Bohr was developing the theory of the atom. Uh, it w we were in a primitive stage of understanding not only the astrophysical world, but the subatomic world, too. And as a matter of fact, just to let you know, it was a woman who first figured out what was happening in radioactivity and put the word fission on separating, on the, on the splitting of atoms that produced energy uh, called radioactive energy. But at any rate, so Cecilia Payne kept insisting, and they allowed her to write her dissertation. And uh, and they, but at the end of the their work, they made her uh, they made her write in her dissertation the enormous abundance of hydrogen is almost certainly not real. They had her put a caveat like that in her dissertation. Well, then very shortly, of course. Some others studying around the world realized that Cecilia Payne and not all of the astrophysicists at Harvard had gotten it right, that the sun was made up of hydrogen, and in 1942 we had our first uh, sustained fission reaction, the critical reactor, a criti pile on critical at the uh, squash court at the University of Chicago under the direction of Enrico Fermi. And we then we came to understand in a few years how it was that the sun produced heat in order to heat the solar system. And just in case you're wondering how much uh, how much hydrogen is burned to produce the heat that powers our solar system, it's 4 million tons of hydrogen are converted into energy every second. 4 million tons of hydrogen. Now, you may wonder, say, wow, that sun must be fairly large. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. I, one of the one of the things that we don't do very well is uh, draw uh, a two-scale uh, view of the um, of the solar system. Even we, you know, we put the sun out here and it's large, and then we put the planets so they all fit on a page. But you can think of it this way: uh, Jupiter is ten times larger than the Earth, and the sun is a thousand times larger than Jupiter, so the sun is ten thousand times larger than the Earth. And just to put a couple more figures on it, that I, you know, you should know is that our Earth was formed probably about four and a half billion years ago, and the Sun, we're at the midpoint. We're middle-aged in terms of the Sun. We got about four and a half billion more years to go, and that is that is the world in which we live. Now we, it's hard to think about things like that because. Uh, <laughs> say it again. I missed it. <laughs> not not in this class, but there may well be somewhere beyond this class. <laughs> how do you understand it? All right. So now, how are we going to... Now, what is the model which Primak and Abram set forth as a cosmological, as a, as a new cosmology for understanding the makeup of the universe? And it's a they propose, what they propose, and I'm going to try and draw it up here, make sure I get it right. What they propose is to use the pyramid. If you look at the back of your dollar bill, you can talk about the... Ooh, we're missing... <laughs> okay. Let me see if we can go ahead. Go ahead. Okay.
sound. I'm wired not only for your speaking system here, but I'm also wired for a recording device that my daughter wants me to record this, and she'll put it up on a website that she's created for me, just to let you know. But I understand that you can uh, listen to this and get ready for the test <laughs> after I get done here. <laughs> now, uh, the, the pyramid, the pyramid represents the total, uh, total, uh, mass of the universe, all of the material in the universe. And an interesting fact of, that we have discovered along the way of the research of this last century is that there is an awful, there's a tremendous amount that we don't know anything about of mass of how, what the universe is made of that we don't understand at all. Actually, about 70% of this pyramid, oh, that, that's roughly 70%, is what we call dark energy. Dark energy. Now, the word dark is probably not the best word in the world to use because that that tends to impress it's dark like night or you can't see. It's black and that sort of thing. Well, it isn't that. It's invisible. We can't, we know it's there. And I could describe the process by which we know it's there, but the simplest way that we know it's there is because it's what's causing the universe to expand. Just by the way, along the way, I trust you realize that um, Einstein uh, made a mistake in his theory of relativity. Good Jew that he was, he believed in a static universe. But his mathematics showed him that the universe was expanding. And because he couldn't believe the mathematics over his uh, religious bias, religious conviction that the universe was static, uh, he put what he called the cosmological constant in the equation to make what he make his mathematics fit what he believed. And it took uh, Erwin Hubble who was the one who discovered the red shift, which meant that all of the all of the universe is moving rapidly outward. Now I, I will I will correct that just a little bit. Say that what's moving rapidly outward away from us is the galaxies. It isn't that this you know all of the, the stars in the galaxy and all of the uh, all of the various. Uh, bodies in the galaxies are flying apart. The galaxies are held together by gravity, but the uh, dark energy is expanding the universe. Um, when the universe began, and I find this fascinating, and it began, it began with the uh, Big Bang, so to speak, uh, which is a singularity of creation. The Big Bang was named Big Bang by Arthur Hoyle, who was a physicist at Cambridge who didn't believe in the in the singularity of creation. And uh, he he called it derisively the Big Bang because he didn't believe he didn't believe that there was an ex explosion or an expansion. Actually, there was an inflation. Um, I, you know, I think I'll... Uh, uh, there was an in, uh, inflation of the universe uh, right at the beginning. Um, the if you talk about the smallest distance that we can measure, it is Planck, the Planck distance, which is about 10 to the, the minus 33rd centimeters. And I'm going to use centimeters simply because centimeters is a, a sort of international thing. All right, you understand? Um, the farthest distance we can measure in the universe is 10 to the 28th centimeter. And that's um, 10 to the 28th centimeters. That's the horizon of the universe. 
10 to, 10 to the 28. Yeah, that's 10 with 28 zeros after. And this 10 to the minus 33rd is 1 with 33 zeros before it. See, it's very, very short distance, very small distance. And uh, the, when the Big Bang occurred, there was a Planck time of about 10 to the minus 43 seconds when the material in the universe expanded from being in, infinitesimally small, very compressed, to about the size of a baby. All right? And if you think about the size of a baby, the baby is right here in the middle of the summer, about 10 squared or a little less, 100 centimeters or a little bit less. So that at the end of Planck time, the universe has inflated. Now you can go back and you can read the calculations about the temperatures and that went into it. But after that inflation, the blueprint of the universe that was to emerge from that event um, was, was in place, about the size of the baby. Now if you think about this in terms of uh, orders of magnitude, it had increased about, by about 30, uh, 30, 35 orders of magnitude in Planck time. And it's taken 14 and a half billion years to increase to the space today to that 10 to the 28. And, uh, <laughs> that the, the inflation slowed and then the expansion, the period of expansion began. And we're about 14 and a half billion years into the period of expansion. All right. Uh, the dark energy is powering the expansion. Above the dark energy, and this is about 70%, above the dark energy is another of, let's see, I didn't, I'm not getting this to scale, and I want to make sure I get it, get it to scale. Well, it doesn't need to, I've got a, a lot to write on it. About another 25%, which is also dark, and this is dark <coughs> matter. And again, not dark in the terms of this black light night, it's just that it's invisible. We haven't seen it. We don't, we can't, we know it's there. We know it's there because of the way the galaxies behave. There is not enough matter in the galaxies to account for all the gravitational forces that hold the galaxies together. So there must be more matter in the galaxies than we can see, and that is this dark matter, and right now it's about 25% of the, of the universe. Now this 25% is stable. There isn't going to be any more dark matter. Dark energy is increasing. So that these percentages that I'm writing up here now are uh, are just that. Uh, they're percentages. This is a time-sensitive shot of the cosmos. All right. So my, where, where do black holes go? What? Where do black holes what, what are they? Energy or matter? Um, the, the black holes occur when uh, stars implode. And you get a, a tremendous increase of gravity, which sucks everything into it. It's a, it's you a. Call, which of those batches are you calling? What? In which of those? Twenty-five of the seven do they belong? Uh, neither. They are part of the. They are part of the makeup of the galaxies. Uh, we know we can't see them, but we know they exist, and we know where they come come from. This dark matter and dark energy is uh, part uh, part, as I understand it, Paul, from from the the black holes. Which is another another process in the movement of the universe. Okay, now above all of that, and let me just put it that way: uh, we have uh, the invisible matter, four percent, and uh, this the invisible matter. Uh, the invisible matter is the atomic matter.
uh, invisible in fact, but not in theory. It's the atmosphere, it's uh, it's all of the, uh, you know, everything that exists. We know it exists because we know we can see it, uh, but it is uh, invisible in fact, as I say, but not in theory. We know it exists. Now, beyond that, up here, we're getting, we're getting this pyramid filled up. But, uh, 0.5% is hydrogen and helium. Uh, 0.5%. And the, the reason for that is the reason for that is the sun and other 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 astral bodies are made up mainly of hydrogen and helium. We can separate that out. And that leaves up above there at, at 0.01%. Uh, I said 40%. 4%. Visible matter. You and me. Where does visible matter come from? Visible matter comes from stars that have, uh, have become unstable. They were, they, when they form, they were too big. They become unstable and they explode and they scatter uh, the elements all over the universe. And then the elements collect into uh, other stars and form galaxies. And that process is going on all the time, by the way. And I don't have the figures here exactly, but it's a, a considerable number of galaxies coming into being and suns exploding across this across this universe. Now that is the way we understand the world today as different from the sort of solar-centric or um, terra-centric or solar-centric universe. Um, one of the things, one of the things that, uh, well, let me stop at that point. This, to me, this to me in and of itself would demand some rethinking of how do we understand God. How uh, I I thought that the Big Bang was where we began, but the physicists have even gone back beyond the Big Bang to say that outside of this universe of ours is an expanding area that's filled with nothing but hydrogen. And that when our universe formed, it was just a crack opened up in the floor, and a little bit of that matter slipped through, and that became our universe. I thought, say, oh, right. Now, the big question that raises me, how do we understand God as creator in the middle of this? Can we? When we talk about God in the beginning, God created heavens, which is not the best translation of that verse that I have said in classes before. When God began to create the, uh, the world, <laughs> the earth was without form. God began to create the earth. It was, the earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the It was not creation out of nothing, creation out of something that was already there. Do we take that as what kind of literal truth do we take that? Where is God amidst all this creation? In other words, I'm going into it with my faith open, and, but my mind working. Let me just say a little bit more about the subatomic world. Now, this is the macro universe I'm talking about. No, oh, by the way, if we hang around for another thousand years or a couple thousand years, I mean, if we as human beings hang around for another thousand years or so, which is somewhat problematic, but, you know, if we can stick around. One of the things that Abrams and Tremont argue for is, for heaven's sakes, let's get the earth in order. We've got time, people. And there's no limit to what our what we might do or our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and those coming after them might do if we can solve the, you know, the problems of nationalism, or put it that way. Uh, the way I like to put it best is the 5,000-year-old domination order, which, okay, 
my Christianity says is absolutely anti-Christian. The game of humanity is who's going to dominate whom. And the biggest critique of that ever lived out was Jesus of Nazareth, who is Christ. Now I'm just giving where I'm going. Where I'm going with all of this. But what Fremont and Abrams argue, and I agree with them, we've got time. There's no limit to what we can discover and what we can do if we can just get our act together as a human race. Let me, let me raise a question. Did God plan, was the universe created to produce human beings? This is called the strong anthropic principle. And there are a lot of, a lot of people that believe that God created the universe some way or another in order to produce human beings. My take on it is that there have been a lot of human, humanid, humanid or humanoid or human kinds of creatures, uh, in our evolutionary history. Finally, there came one whom God could get through to. All right. Was it the best one? No. But it said, if I wait much longer, I might, <laughs> I might lose a chance. See, so he got through to Homo sapiens, the wise Homo, the wise man, who has always proven so wise. Now, subatomic, real quick. One of the, one of the other mistakes Einstein made, and he did make another, several mistakes, was that he could not accept the idea of, uh, quantum random activity in the universe. Meaning that the universe is not predestined, that there is a randomness at the fundamental heart of matter, that, uh, and what he said, what he said was, this came out in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And this Werner Heisenberg was a German mathematician, and incidentally, he was the leader of Hitler's uh, uh, work on the atomic bomb. Uh, he was the one who was doing uh, Hitler's Project Manhattan while we were doing Project Manhattan during the Second World War. But Werner Heisenberg came up with a fundamental principle that has been proven true: that you can that you cannot measure the the momentum and the position of uh, an atom at the same time or a subatomic particle, you just cannot do it. Uh, if you try to measure one, you won't know the other. And uh, Einstein uh, and a couple of his friends developed a thought process that said, yes, you can do it. And it, and he uh, talked about two uh, particles colliding, and you measure the space place of one, and then you measure the uh, from the mo- you measure the momentum of the other, and you can deduce the momentum of the first one from the momentum of the other one. And he proposed that, and it was a problem for the physicist until 1982. And in 1982, a French physicist by the name of Alain uh, Aspect did an experiment which proved that Einstein was wrong. Einstein's favorite uh, saying, of course, often repeated, was God does not play dice with the universe. Well, yes, my dear friends, God does play dice with the universe. There is a randomness in in nature that you just cannot get around. Now, there is the interesting thing about it is that, and I'll, let me just see if I can find it in my notes here. I think I got it right here. Um... Um, well, what it is, and, and uh, I misplaced it, what it is is stochasticity, stochastic. That means, basically the word means to proceed as the spirit moves you. 
Uh, we are proceeding stochastically. We are going in accordance with the reality that confronts us, and we're we're open for the change. Uh, stochasticity recognizes um, the fact that uh, that all subatomic events are uh, are statistical. Now, within the statistics, there there are the statistics for the the events happening in a certain way are relatively large. But they are statistics, and the and the there can be uh, random actions that are different from what the statistics, the majority of the statistics produce. In other words, there is a room for emergent novelty in the, the order of nature. Yeah, Paul. If you quit there, you're going to tell us how this is real Christology. Uh, no, I'm going to say that for next week. <laughs> no, the random, I'm going to save that for next week. I'm going to be here next week. Well, you can get the recording then. I, I promise you that. I, but this is, this is the world in which we live in. It is the world of quantum randomness. And Einstein, Einstein said, no, 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 no to quantum. Well, he was proved wrong. But it wasn't until 1982 that he was proved wrong. So he missed on two points. He missed on the idea of a static universe. And he missed on the idea of uh, emergent novelty, the possibility of emergent novelty. Uh, I think one of you, uh, some of you know that my favorite author of the last century was uh, Lauren Eisler, and he named the book that I that introduced me to him, The Unexpected Universe, and this is what he was talking about. He was talking about the universe of the Big Bang and expansion. But and just to sum up this, uh, it said a thousand, two thousand years from now, our ancestors, if they're around, if there are any around to look at the universe, will not see the same universe that we see. There will be a lot more emptiness in the sky. We have emerged at the middle point when they, we have come to grasp this and we can look and we can see these uh, galaxies, a good many of them, a uh, thousand years, two thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, if we have, if the human race is still alive and has a memory of what we are talking about today, they won't see the same thing. They won't be able to see as many galaxies. They will disappear. Uh, actually, they won't notice it too much because most of what we can see with the naked eye is in our own solar system anyway, and that's not flying apart. That's part of the Milky Way galaxy, and the galaxy will will continue. Uh, we've got about four and a half billion years before the sun burns out. It's time to do a lot of things. <laughs> you know, now, now uh, <laughs> what I want to what I want to talk. Okay, that's the world. My conviction, just to give you a hint, is that God, and I'll begin at the beginning, some power whom we name God, beyond ourselves, beyond our natural world, plays in the natural world by the same rules that I have just described. He's not, he's not dealing with some um, world of the past or some concept of the past of the world. He's dealing with the real world. Yeah. Can we say that that, that God created this world um, uh, beyond our wildest imaginations. We're still exploring it. We're still learning about it. But we as Christians can't deny that God created it, no matter how complex it was. True. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can say that. But that, that's always my question. In what sense is God the creator here? Did he create that expanding space of hydrogen and then let it come from the Big Bang and the universe evolved? Yeah. 
Or where did he step into this process? See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? Yeah. Where did he step into the process? We know the process incredibly more than when, you know, that 1900 buggy ride causes the sun burn. We know it incredibly more. And we, I'll go back to Maimonides. I'm not going to park either my brains or my faith at the door. And I get impatient with those who do. I had somebody in this congregation say to me several years ago that it was wonderful that God wiped out all those heathen over there when they had the tsunami in Indonesia, 260,000 people. I was in good. Yeah. What did you say? What did you say? <laughs> what did you do? I, you know, I was so astounded I couldn't say anything. <clears throat> Hell, he's not going to tell you. <laughs> ho 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 <laughs> let's see we need we need to be in prayer from alone <laughs> that's it for today I know Mike came from Illinois. <laughs> I called him. I found out from Dr. Stamps, who preached a revival, a little bit about him. I called him. He was locking up the basement of a church. And I, I thought he could capable of doing more than that, really. <laughs> but when I interviewed him over three and a half days, we talked about stuff like this. <laughs> He talked, I listened. <laughs> and I said, if it's that complex, I need you. And so we got it. Let's <laughs> have a word of prayer. Father, for the gift of laughter, for the gift of friendship, for the gifts of being together, for the fellowship and the love that binds us in Christ, I look to you in gratitude. Especially with Malone and the surgery this week and with others who need your special care and guidance and comfort in the midst of the physical problems that we have. But bless us too that we may continue to search out and to grow and to understand this creation which grows more and more astounding as we explore its depths and its heights and its limits. And there find you guiding us along the way of our pilgrimage. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. One other thing. You can think of yourself in this visible matter. You can either think of yourself as nuclear waste or stardust. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Thank you. Thank you. Long was that conversation back there recorded? <laughs> he had on three mics. <laughs> oh, that was great. Well, I didn't hit too good this week on my thought for the day to match somebody's. You know, sometimes it does, but I stuck to our famous coach, Vince Lombardi, back into our season of our football. And the thought for the day is... The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and the determination that whether we win or lose, we have applied the best of ourselves to the task at hand. So that's it. And thanks, Mike. We look forward to next week. And I think we'll have a lot of... Gail, we have homework.